Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and how difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take a moment to put our stuff down as we do each week and take a moment, a few moments of silence. Just take some deep breaths in and out and be reminded that God is here with us. He is present with us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are here and long to speak to us this morning. And so let's just lay our burdens, our distractions, our cares and concerns before him and ask that he would speak in a way that we can hear and obey. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence here with us. Thank you that you love us, that you long for our wholeness, for us to experience the goodness of your kingdom together. And so would you speak now, your servants are listening, would you open up our minds, our hearts, our bodies, and our souls to the truth that you have for us through your scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you are familiar with the sport freediving? I know, okay, I know we live in Indiana, guys, but like this is a thing. It's, it's a pretty big thing. Um, it's essentially like the inverse, uh, going the opposite direction of free climbing, if you're into climbing. Uh, athletes descend hundreds of feet below the surface of the ocean using a single breath. No oxygen tanks, very little equipment besides a rope, goggles, and some flippers. If you're into or somewhat familiar with um, free diving, you've probably heard of a woman named Alessi Zucchini. She's an Italian diver. She's a world record holder. She recently uh, held her breath, this is staggering to me, for three minutes and 38 seconds and made it 357 feet below the surface of the ocean to set the world record again for like the 10th time. Truly an amazing feat uh, and just iron lungs. I mean, I I have no concept for that uh, that kind of skill. If you're familiar with the documentary, The Deepest Breath, it tells her story and the story of her boyfriend and trainer, Stephen Keenan. I will, I will not spoil it, or I'll try not to spoil it, but um, a lot of the story centers around a famous dive that she made to set one of her world records in what's known as the Blue Hole Arch, which is a submarine sinkhole near Dehab, Egypt, that's called the Diver Cemetery. I think more divers have died there under that arch than anywhere else in the world. And in the climactic scene of the documentary, she dives down about 50 meters trying to get underneath this arch. She dives down into what is just simply the utter darkness. I mean, you cannot see uh, anything under the arch. And the plan was that she would, on, she would go under the arch and come out the other side where her boyfriend, Stephen, who was the, the world's best safety diver, right? The safety divers will dive down at the end of the rope and they will accompany them as they go back to the surface if you know anything about free diving, the most dangerous parts, like the last you know, 50 feet or so, where people will often black out and they have to be rushed back to the surface and resuscitated. And so the plan was for her to meet him at the rope after she ascended back from her dive on the rope on the other side. And she um, completes a very elaborate plan that they had planned out for weeks. Um, but she completes, there's a problem, she completes her dive 10 seconds early. 
And then Stephen is 20 seconds late for some reason that people still don't understand on his planned arrival time down at the 50-meter checkpoint. And so underneath the arch, she gets disoriented, and she can't find the rope. She misses the rope, and then in sort of a panic moment, begins to do just what maybe would be natural. It's that she sees the reef, and she follows the reef, hoping to find the rope, but actually doesn't realize that she's going the completely opposite direction of where the rope is. And just a massive tragedy ensues that I won't tell you about, because you need to watch the documentary. And it's very, very sad um, and, and harsh, okay? So... Not a great ending. Don't Google it. I'm just going to leave you with that cliffhanger. It's okay. Now, I was struck in coming to this passage this morning and in thinking about that documentary about just with how much precision is required to succeed at free diving. I mean, every little detail has to be coordinated, thought through, planned, and days and weeks of planning can be undone with a simple mistake or a shift in the environment. And I think this is sort of a cautionary tale, uh, really, about life. Anything good or true or beautiful that we want to move towards requires a narrow way. I mean, there's only one way to get under the arch, into the rope, into safety. And it was missed, and destruction and devastation occurred. And Jesus says something similar here about the kingdom of God, which is very offensive to us and our modern sensibilities. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount. So the the heart of the sermon, 14 teachings. There's an intro with the Beatitudes and then an outro here. And as he moves into the outro, he gives an invitation wrapped in three warnings. Today, I want to look at the first two, the warning of the, the, the narrow path and then the warning of the false prophets. And then in two weeks, we'll come back and close the Sermon on the Mount with the last warning about how we how we build a life. Uh, that is congruent with the kingdom. And so let's look at this narrow way in verse 13 together. Jesus again says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and how difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Jesus is drawing on a metaphor here in this passage that would have been very familiar in the ancient world, a gate. Gates were used as controlled access points to strategic resources like cities or temples or even livestock in a day when you didn't have a 401k. A couple examples of what Jesus could have been talking about, biblical scholars are sort of divided on what imagery he's trying to invoke here. Um, Maybe he's talking about a city gate. So here's a picture of the Golden Gate uh, not the San Francisco one, but the Jerusalem one. Um, this would have been, you know, I think there were 11 uh, gates to the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. This is the Eastern Gate, through which many people uh, believe that he walked through on Palm Sunday over by the Mount of Olives coming into the city of Jerusalem. Maybe he's referring to a city gate. Maybe he's referring to, like in John chapter 10, a sheep gate. Here's an example of a sheepfold gate. You know, you had a, a controlled access point to ward off predators and sort of control access to uh, animals and the larger livestock. We don't know, but don't miss the meaning for the metaphor. It's a a metaphor, it's okay. We don't exactly know what's going on. Uh, But there's a bigger point that Jesus is making here. Remember, Jesus, Matthew is presenting Jesus as a wisdom teacher, as a sage. So think like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes-style wisdom teacher. And Jesus, being this brilliant wisdom teacher that he was, concludes his sermon by playing the role of what we might call a spiritual cartographer, a map maker, inviting people to use their imagination as a form of self-reflection, right? Inviting people to envision their lives as a journey. So this is not something that Cormac McCarthy invented uh, with the road or whatever. Like this is not, like the road imagery goes back far beyond that to envision life as a journey with two possible paths and two possible destinations. This phrasing of two ways was a teaching device that was often employed by Old Testament prophets and poets as a way to cut through this tendency that we have as human beings to want to overly nuance. Do you have this propensity to overly nuance life, to sort of complexify life? Well, you just don't understand. It's complex. It's nuanced. It's complicated. If you weren't so simplistic. Okay. Like, we had this tendency to overcomplicate things. And and I'm not saying that life isn't complex. But sometimes we complexify things to avoid confronting simple realities. The wisdom teachers would say there's a simplicity on the other side of complexity, that actually allows us to make clear choices, and sometimes we wanna avoid that. 
And you see this all over the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, uh, Moses, the prophet, the great prophet of Israel up on a mountain says, uh, I, I, sit, I, I sit before you today a blessing and a curse two ways, the way of blessing and the way of cursing. Um, you see this in Jeremiah 21, where the prophet says, this is what the Lord says, I'm setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Perhaps uh, one that Jesus is drawing on, most people think throughout the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in the Beatitudes, Psalm chapter one, the psalmist says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. You see, at every critical juncture point in Israel's journey towards redemption and life with God, there was one of these moments where a prophet or a poet would stand up and say, hey, let me remind you guys about the kingdom of God. Let me remind you of the Torah. Let me remind you of two ways. You see this at the Exodus with Sinai. You see this when they entered the promised land at Jordan with Joshua. You see this in the exile when they came back and they were rebuilding the temple after their disobedience and idolatry. So with that as sort of like the background to this passage, imagine Jesus now like Israel's great prophet Moses, climbing a mountain, delivering a kingdom manifesto, inviting the disciples to rethink everything they thought they knew about God and about themselves and about the world to come. Jesus is the true and final prophet, Matthew says, who, who is giving a new map for reality, and he's framing it in terms of two simple choices. On the one hand, Jesus says, there's the broad path. There's the way of destruction. Literally, this Greek word here is apollyon, if you're familiar with that, uh, that sort of mythology uh, in, in Revelation. There's the way of destruction, which is just simply Jesus referencing back the vicious cycles that he just finished unmasking in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is organized around 14 teachings, a way of destruction and vicious cycles and a way of transformation in the kingdom of God. And so he just talked about self-righteousness, the cycles of hypocrisy and performative spirituality and anger and lust and hating your enemies and being greedy and, and worrying and being anxious about things that you don't need to worry about. Like, this is, this is what he's talking about as the way of destruction. And he says, many people will find this. In other words, the, the sort of populist energy of the crowds, of the majority of people, if you just lift up your feet and go with the spirit of the age, will push you in this direction unless you are vigilant, unless you are awake, unless you consciously resist every single day. Right? Like every single day, there is a war for your imagination happening where your imagination, your desires, your attention is being recruited in service of an agenda. And what starts out maybe as foreign all of a sudden becomes normalized, right? You ever, you ever recognize that? Like things that you just think are normal, like you ever get in a relationship with somebody and you've just always done it this way in your family of origin and then you realize there's like a totally different way to do it and you're like, oh, I, I, that's, that's wrong. That's not the way. This is the way. It's like, no, 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 there's lots of different ways to approach things, and things that all of a sudden start out as abnormal or weird become normal in your family, your uh, industry, your story, or whatever. We talk about being on the right side of history oftentimes in our cultural moment, but not realizing that so many things that are on the right side of history in our cultural moment are on the wrong side of the kingdom of God and God's redemptive purposes in the world. And there are these alternative paths to the way of Jesus. Two, the two most prominent choices before us, two most alter prominent alternatives being the way of secularism, right? Like imagining uh, a world where we pursue prosperity apart from the presence of God. This is the cultural project we've been on for the last several hundred years as, uh, as, as a Western society, trying to deconstruct the notion of God and just live in this sort of imminent frame uh, of existence where there is no God and we're just sort of on a horizontal plane just trying to figure things out. We all kind of know, I mean, at least the church talks a lot about that one, but there's another danger, there's another perilous way, it's the way of religion. And that's actually the one that Jesus spends a lot more time critiquing in the book of Matthew. The way of religion is this way of self-righteousness. It's, it's co-opting, we've talked about this, a sort of performative spirituality that co-opts symbols for the kingdom of God and uses them for selfish purposes and actually ends up serving evil, Jesus will go on to say in this passage. And so there's this choice that we're confronted with all the time. And it's not just a choice, 
It's, it's a series of choices that we have to make time and time again, that we make throughout our lives where there's sort of like a, a divergence, like a Robert Frost sort of moment where we come to that path and we have to choose between going deeper in our life with Jesus and choosing his way or just going along with what's easy and what's comfortable and what's familiar. And I think about my own life and how this is sort of played out at different juncture points. I, I didn't grow up in the church and I became a Christian at age 13 in a, a sort of fundamentalist uh, uh, Christian environment. And um, there was so much hypocrisy. And, and there were some beautiful things. And I don't want to paint it all as bad. I'm grateful for a lot of what I learned. But there was just a culture of hypocrisy and duplicity and abuse of power. People went to jail. All kinds of craziness happened. Um, and, and I went to a Christian school. And one of the things that I, looking back now, see so clearly that it was hard to see in the moment was just how much apathy existed in that school. And I just sort of went along. I mean, I made my choices, and I went along with it, not even realizing that I was sort of on this path that was just what you do when you're a Christian in this kind of environment. And when I was 19, I remember going on a mission trip to the Philippines and spending three weeks with some, uh, some believers from around the world, some other disciples. And it was the first time in my life that I think I really encountered authentic, like on-fire believers in Jesus who really took their faith seriously and were trying to live it out and I was just like, wow, I, I don't even have a category for this, but, but I want this. And it felt like I was in this moment to make a choice, like this way or sort of the way that I was going. I was like, why would, why would I even want to do life with Jesus when I've been exposed to something so much richer and deeper and more authentic? And, and so I chose to go this way, and it was a spiritual awakening. It was a turning point in my life. I had another one of those at age 31 after about 10 years or 12 years in pastoral ministry where I was serving in sort of an upper middle class environment. And I just had this realization that I was, at least I felt like I was in this environment where we're chasing comfort and we're chasing security and we're sort of chasing the idols of, of wealth in this community. And it was just sort of normal. And I just remember thinking, man, like, I don't think this is the kingdom of God. I don't think this is the fullness of the kingdom of God. I wanna be socially engaged in things that matter. I don't wanna just be incrementally advancing the interest of the privilege which again, there's no, I'm not saying that, you know, rich people are evil or bad. It's just in this environment, it bred a sort of uh, weird distortion of the things that are at the heart of Jesus when it comes to uh, being close to the poor and marginalized. I'm like, I don't even have any relationships like that. My life doesn't look like that. I'm not deeply invested in that way in the world. And I wanted something different. And that became the catalyst for us moving to Indianapolis and experiencing a whole different way of being disciples in the kingdom of God. And I don't say that of a sense of superiority. Maybe I've got it wrong. But for me, it was just like these moments where it was like, here's a choice. Here's two paths. This seems so easy and so natural and be easy for me to go this way for all the wrong reasons. But yet there was this constant beckoning to a narrow way. This is what we're faced with, a choice between the way of destruction and the way, on the other hand, Jesus says, of the kingdom. The way that he just finished unpacking and laying out in his teaching, a vision for human flourishing and holistic righteousness that comes through a life of joyous participation in the reign of King Jesus. And he says, this way is narrow. Which I know for some of us conjures up negative associations with narrow-mindedness. When we think of religion, we think of narrow-mindedness and narrow-minded people and Jesus may be being narrow-minded. And the reason we think that, I'm not saying there aren't narrow-minded uh, religious people, but the reason we, we often think that is because we've been indoctrinated by enlightenment thinking. We see it, uh, we, we, we've been indoctrinated by sort of a perspective that's all about freedom from, right? Nobody can tell me what to do. You, do, you do you, don't tell me where to go, what to do, just sort of whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't harm anybody. We talked about this last week. And so narrow-mindedness feels so constricting and so bad, narrow feels so constricting and bad. But, but we're selective about that, right? Like there's certainly areas in our life where we don't mind people being narrow-minded. Like when, when was the last time you complained about having a narrow-minded surgeon? Like here's the way that you fix somebody's body. Please do it according to the way you were trained. We, we don't mind when a cancer doctor's narrow-minded. We, we don't mind when a, a structural engineer and a construction worker is narrow-minded about how they build our house. If you go to a great restaurant like Root and Bone, you don't mind a narrow-minded chef who follows the recipe and gives you a delicious meal. Narrow, narrowness can lead to spaciousness, 
if it's according to the right design. Narrow, when Jesus says it's a narrow way, and he says it's the only way, what he means is it has a specific content. It can't be whatever you think it can be. It's not subject to your imagination, your preferences, your whims, what your college professor taught you or didn't teach you, what your pastor said growing up or not. It's a specific way. It has a particular shape according to the beautiful design of God's kingdom. That's what we're after. And and it's it's not a mystery. He just spent all this time talking about it. It's the way of forgiveness and reconciliation as opposed to a way of anger. It's telling the truth instead of deception. It's honoring others' dignity instead of exploiting them for your own lust. It's honoring your enemies and loving them rather than seeking to demonize and destroy them. It's a way of prayerfulness and fasting and generosity and trusting God instead of worrying in a way that inevitably brings us into tribulation and suffering as a portal into flourishing. This is the way, he says, leads to life. The Greek word here is zoe life, as opposed to bios. Biological life is one order of life. This is a a different kind of life, a real life, a true life that is less like a a realm, some sort of Star Wars, far, far away galaxy type thing, and is more like what you were designed to experience in the fullness of your humanity. We often translate this word, it gets translated eternal life, and we think that means quantity of life after you die. But I think a better concept for life is quality of life. Think like the nice wine versus the two-buck chuck. Like the kingdom of God is the highest quality wine, the highest quality meal that you could ever imagine, the highest and best life possible, a transformed life with God and his kingdom that doesn't start in the future. It starts right now in the present and continues on into the future. This is the way of Jesus. And that's why I think in, in, in Jesus' teachings, he applies this to himself, this metaphor to himself. John chapter 10, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. In other words, find spaciousness, find freedom, not just a freedom from, but a freedom to in a deep life with God that sees constraints not as a bad thing as long as they're according to the design and the beautiful and the good and the true that we are created to experience. John 14, 6, I am the way, I'm I'm the road, I'm the path, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is why the the first followers of Jesus in Acts weren't called Christians until Acts 13. They were the most common denominator for them In the book of Acts is what? The way. The way of Jesus. It's a way of following Jesus and his life. It's been said, if we want the the life of Jesus, we have to take on the lifestyle of Jesus. Because he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. We don't get life without the way and the truth. And so Jesus invites us, the invitation is to enter This is Matthew's language for choose, right? Follow. Anytime you see enter in the book of Matthew, it's always about entering into the kingdom, making a choice between these two ways. And this choice is not just converting to a new religion or a religious dogma or a belief system. It's this compelling whole life invitation to enter into an alternative vision for human flourishing, a new story of the world that gives fresh meaning and purpose to our lives in a way that no other competing story can offer. Jesus is not the only person in history who invites us to enter a kingdom. That's what we have to realize. We're always being formed. We're always being invited and beckoned. He's not the only one to invite us to follow a teacher or live a way. Every religion, every culture, even our own, every philosophy has its own way, a path to the good life. So the question isn't, will we live a certain way? We like to think of ourselves as sort of autonomous thinkers, right? Like nobody tells me what to do. I think I'm my own. I'm a critical thinker. But you know what every bit of social psychology, social psychological research tells us? We are mostly the product of our environments. Our thinking is deeply shaped by what's happening around us. And so the question is not, will we live a certain way or will we follow someone? 
but which way are we living and who are we following? In other words, what kind of story am I living in and what kind of person is that story leading me to become? Alasdair McIntyre, the, the great Christian philosopher, says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story and story, or stories do I find myself apart? Or as Pastor Pete Hughes says, that the story you live in is the story you live out. So what story are you choosing to live in? Jesus calls you to reflect on that. And he doesn't force his way upon you. Notice he invites discovery, right? Find it. Find it for yourself, and you'll find what's really true and good and beautiful. But it's this question we all have to confront. What story am I living in? Is the story I'm believing in, is it congruent and coherent? Does it make sense of reality and all of its beauty and brokenness and redemptive possibilities? And most importantly, is walking this path in this story leading me to become the kind of person God created me to become, a person of Christ-like love or not? That's the imitation of Jesus. And then the warnings. But there's other ways to live. And by the way, there's people who will tempt you towards other paths. And so as we are making these choices to follow Jesus over and over and over again and follow his way, there are some dangers on the road that we need to watch out for. And one of the primary ones Jesus says is regarding what he calls false prophets. Let's continue here with verse 15. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. This warning language here, be careful, is a word that is used six times in the book of Matthew. When Jesus uses this language, we need to pay attention. The word literally means to watch out, to be on guard, to wake up. It's the imagery of somebody just kind of moving through life as a sort of zombie, not aware of all that's influencing them. So Jesus says, hey, pay attention, lean in a little closer, perk up your ears, because what I'm about to tell you is not easy to see. Matthew uses this word six times, always in reference to the danger of supposed spiritual leaders in the community of faith. He uses it to talk about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes in chapter six. He uses it to describe his opponents in chapter 10. He talks about the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 16. And then here in chapter 24, he talks about Literally, the translation here is pseudo-prophets and false messiahs. In the taxonomy of leadership in Israel in the Old Testament, there were four kinds of leaders. You had kings who represented God's authority over the people. You had priests who mediated God's presence to the people. You had sages who observed the realities of life from a human perspective and offered a way of flourishing for people. And then you had the prophets the prophets were those who spoke on behalf of God to the people. They had that energy that said, thus saith the Lord, like God has spoken to me. I have a word for you. You can't disregard this word unless you do it to your own peril. And, and if you read the prophetic literature, like if you read Malachi or Ezekiel or Amos, Jeremiah, there was, there was this burning vision. They had this encounter with God and they had a burning vision of the future that was then applied to their current cultural moment that always led to repentance and renewal or else judgment. There was really no other two ways about it. Now, that might sound kind of weird to us. We don't talk about prophets in our day, unless you grew up in like a charismatic Pentecostal tradition where you had like Prophet Brandon or whatever leading the church. But we, we don't think like that. But yeah, we have prophets. Don't, don't we still have prophets, even if you're here and you're not a disciple of Jesus? There are prophets in our cultural moment, both inside and outside the church. There are people who make claims to represent God or if they're not religious, to represent reality or to represent science and to have a certain kind of special access to knowledge and wisdom and skills that point in the direction of a life well lived. We don't call them prophets. What do we call them? Professors, podcasters, influencers, social media you know, influencers, authors, maybe sometimes pastors. For most of us, probably not. And Jesus says something that offends our modern, modern sensibilities, but we need to hear it. Not all prophets point us toward the good life. Did you hear it? 
you're like, oh, no, 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 everybody's, you know, everybody's got their own truth. Claim your own truth. Own your own truth. Okay. But, like, if you ever, like, if you just collected all the wisdom of, like, the top 10 podcasts on, like, religion and spirituality or self-help or what, I mean, it'd be like, it's not all true. It can't be. They're saying contradictory things, which I know is very postmodern to be like, yeah, no, it's all, you know, it's all that paradox. But, but that's not how reality works. And, and, and don't hear this as the ranting of a fringe fundamentalist, you know, who's always warning us about, I think of like my childhood, like, here's the chart. I actually thought about that this morning. I was like, all right, for the imitation, um, let's take the next five minutes, and I'm going to give you the list of all the false prophets in the evangelical world right now. You ready? Let's go. I'm like, no, I might, I might traumatize you guys. So I, I'm not going to do that, and I don't even think there is a list. Um, I thought if I'm going to put a list on the screen, I'm going to put a list of myself, because I, I, I need this message. I need to check my own heart. I'm not a, I don't think I'm a false prophet. I wouldn't know if I was, but um, <laughs> I need to look at myself first. We'll get back to that in just a second. <laughs> but this is a big theme in, in the Bible. There are dozens of references in every era of the biblical narrative where there's a warning against false prophets. In contrast to Jesus, who's the true prophet, who shows us the way to life in the kingdom, there are pseudo-prophets that we need to watch out for. And it's, again, not as easy as we'd like to think to spot them. Jesus says they look like sheep. They look like followers of Jesus. They use Jesus' language. Sheep were the most common animals in ancient Palestine. But he says inside, they're really wolves, violent, cunning predators who are out for blood. And every Jewish person listening to this message would have double-clicked on this, this sheep and this wolf in sheep's clothing, and they would have gone back to places like Ezekiel 22, where Jesus is talking about learning to discern the voice of the good shepherd, where the prophet Ezekiel is talking about that. And he says this, her officials within her, the spiritual leaders, those who are supposed to be speaking for God, are like wolves tearing their prey, shedding blood and destroying lives in order to make profit dishonestly. Her prophets plaster for them with whitewash by seeing false visions and lying divinations, saying, this is what the Lord God says, when the Lord hasn't spoken. They're not speaking from God. They're speaking from their own preferences, their own imaginations. But it's so hard to tell the difference. How do we tell a false prophet from a true prophet? Look at verse 16. Twice, Jesus says, you'll recognize them by their what? Let's say it together. Fruit. By their fruit. Fruit in the language of scripture is a reference to our character, what comes out from our inside and eventually spills out into our actions. Remember, this is an agrarian society. Figs and grapes would have been common crops. Thorns and thistles, a common nuisance for farmers. And it, this is not rocket science, right? Jesus is saying fruit bear fruit according to their nature. Good plants with good root systems produce good fruit. Bad plants with bad or sick or shallow root systems produce bad fruit. So what is the fruit that we should be looking for? What's the test for false teachers, false prophets, false messiahs? The two-pronged test for the church in terms of fruit has always been this, the test of one's life and the test of your teaching. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, Paul says to Pastor Timothy, as he's overseeing a young congregation, pay close attention to your life and to your teaching, which again, don't just think of like doctrinal statements Think about embodied teaching, the fruit of your life, and then what you're teaching about Jesus. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So let's start real quickly with the life test. Jesus says you absolutely must look at the fruit of people's lives who claim to be speaking for God. Not everyone who says to me, he goes on, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. The first question we should ask of any prophet, secular or religious, any podcaster, any pastor, any author is, are they doing the will of the Father as Jesus defines it in the Sermon on the Mount? This, this phrase, doing the will of the Father, is Matthew's basic definition for righteousness, doing the will of the Father from the heart. It's a contrast to the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who did the will of God, but not from a heart that actually loved God. We've talked about this many, many times in Matthew. So the simple question is, does their life look like the Sermon on the Mount? Look at it. 
get up close enough to smell their deodorant and their cologne, in other words? Is there poverty of spirit? What's the aroma? Is there meekness and humility and mercy and hungering for justice and a willingness to suffer when the outcomes don't turn out your way? Is there a love of enemy? How do they handle money and sex and power? How do they treat the poor? Do they even know the poor? How do they interact with their spouse and their children, graciously or harshly? Are they under spiritual authority? Do they have pastors? Are they in a church community where there's any sort of accountability? Is there any evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And on and on we could go, but the point is, look at their life. Don't just buy in the first time you read their book or you hear their podcast and it tugs at something in your, your heart. This is why it's so dangerous for us in this moment. And I just wanna say this, and to those who have ears to hear and it feels relevant, receive it. If don't, then don't. But man, it's so dangerous for us on social media and with Christian publishing. And we have access to more resources than any other Christians in history, and yet we have more drama and chaos and conflict in the church than we've ever had, probably. And I just wanna warn us against following digital celebrities, following digital influencers. I'm always amazed when I sit down and talk to people, like, who's influencing how you think about your marriage? Who's influencing how you think about your faith? Who's teaching you? Nine times out of 10, it's like, oh, have you heard this podcast? It's amazing. I love this, this influencer on Instagram, man. They just, they know what they're talking about. When it comes to parenting our kids, we don't necessarily go to actual real adults who are parenting their children. We read a parenting book and then we're like, yep, I'm good. I mean, it's amazing to me. And it's so dangerous, right? Because how do you know anything about their life? How would you know if they're actually living any of that out? It's just disembodied content. And that's the cultural moment we're living in, stripping down truth and making truth content that we resonate, not words from God that are embodied that we actually have to obey. And there's two very, those are two very different ways to approach truth and life. So I say that to say, we have to be able to see if they're living it out to see whether or not it's true. And you should be doing the same thing with us. We live in the neighborhood, our pastors, our staff, our leadership, we're here. You should be asking us those questions. But even that is not enough. And this is sort of the paradox here of a good wisdom teacher. It's sort of like, this is true and this is true at the same time, how are they, how are they both true? Jesus is like, yeah, look at their life. But then he goes on to say, but it's not enough because their life can look one way and their insides be different. What? Yeah, that's Jesus, okay? so. He says, it's not enough, because even you can do good works, right? We learned back in chapter six from a performative spirituality place. And so Jesus says, don't just look at their life, also look at their teaching, right? Do they teach us to follow Jesus in doing the will of the Father? Is that the teaching? Is that the message? We should ask of any prophet, and we should look at their teaching and we should think about it like a spiritual biopsy when you go into the doctor and you get a biopsy done and they, they put it under a microscope and they sort of diagnose it, right? Like think about that, we've used this phrasing before, but like, you do you. That's just like the, the air that we breathe. You do you unless it harms somebody. Okay, let's think about that for a moment. Where does that come from? That's not in the Bible. Where, where does that phrase come from? Like it has, a, it has a genesis, it has an intellectual history. It has a philosophical history. It comes out of the enlightenment. So we, we, we've got to biopsy the things that are being taught instead of just swallowing the latest ideology, the latest fad, the latest meme. Memes are effective because they're pithy and they can go viral quickly, but rarely is anything good and beautiful and true able to go viral quickly, <laughs> right? It's the product of thousands of years of ancient wisdom accumulated and handed down in an embodied way from a, a, a community to another community. So we ought to be asking questions like, does this person teach the good news of Jesus as king, who through his life and his teachings and his death and his resurrection and his ascension alone makes the kingdom of God available to those who trust in him by grace through faith? That's the good news of Jesus. Do they teach that? Does their teaching make me want to obey the Sermon on the Mount? Or does it cause me to constantly questioning everything 
to the point where, and I'm not against questioning and not against deconstructing, right? But as C.S. Lewis once said, if you see through everything, you see nothing, you're blind. And so at some point, there has to be a foundation. And the foundation, according to Jesus, is do you do the will of God from heart out of a relationship of love with him? Do they, like Jesus in the sermon, teach the authority of Scripture? Jesus' life and teachings is the key to understanding the story of Scripture and the importance of obeying and following Jesus in all areas of our life. Do they teach orthodoxy, the rule of faith that's been handed down from generation to generation for thousands of years? Contrary to what's popular to say, this, is, this should be no hot take, but there actually is a body of faith that's been handed down from generation to generation. It's called orthodoxy. Do they teach that? Or do they just teach their own preferences, their own ideologies? Do they teach the idea of a kingdom without a king, right? The pursuit of prosperity and progress without the presence of God. That's the moment that we live in. Or do they teach a king without a kingdom, right? Easy discipleship. Bad teaching, Scripture says, I'll throw this on the screen. Um, bad teaching often looks like this, and I don't have time to work through this, but you could just glance at these. It's simplistic, it's reductionistic, it's tribalistic, it's cultic, it's parasitic, and that's a lot of what we see being passed for Christian teaching in our moment. We've got to beware of those who co-opt Christian language and call it orthodoxy and then lead us away from the teachings of Jesus. I love the way that Rosaria Butterfield, who was an atheist, very smart literature professor at Syracuse, she is converted to the way of Jesus, and in her book on hospitality, she says this about the dangers and temptations that she sees uh, in our current moment. She says, we reinvent a Christianity that fits nicely on the coexist bumper sticker, avoiding the shame of the cross for a respectable religion that bows to the idols of our day, consumerism and sexual autonomy being two that she points out. This manipulation strategy relies on using biblical words in anti-biblical ways, it shares with biblical Christianity the same vocabulary, but get this, not the same dictionary. It takes words like gospel and sin and salvation and flourishing and grace, and it uses the language but then Trojan horses things that are actually the exact opposite of what the Bible actually meant. Take a word like freedom, right? We, we think about that in our moment as freedom from. But in the Bible, freedom from sin is a freedom to being a disciple of Jesus. Two radically different ways to think about human flourishing. And, and, and let me just say this. This is true of both the left, right and the left. Because I know some of you right now are like, yeah, get the liberals. <laughs> some of you are like, get the, get the fundies. Both do it. Right? Conservatives and progressives both do this. It's this cycle of like a conservative says it, a progressive reacts to it, they react to the reaction, they react to the reaction to the reaction, and then we end up with cultural distortions that are so weird. Like American Christianity gets so weird, does it not? And at the end of the day, it ends up looking like, depending on what tradition you're in, more like American politics and economics and sociology than the radical teachings of Jesus. Man. And as with the Pharisees and Jesus, I want to just remind us that it's those whose teachings sound most closely aligned to our own that we're most vulnerable to. If you're a conservative, your biggest danger is what's happening in that space, not what's happening with progressives and vice versa. So Jesus, isn't this just so light and just so comfortable? <laughs> just take a deep breath and we'll close and head to communion. Jesus warns that we've got to be careful about people's life and their teaching. These are the two tests. One day that's going to be revealed on that day, which is judgment day in the Bible, the ultimate face-to-face -face performance evaluation that everyone will get with Jesus. Jesus says, get out of my face, literally. I don't know you. I don't know you. Like the word know in the Greek is the word for sexual intimacy. I, I don't have communion with you. I don't know you. You think you know me. I don't know you. And this is the tragic irony that Jesus brings this to a point on, doing things for Jesus, especially for spiritual leaders and those who think they're speaking for Jesus. Doing for Jesus is not the same as doing with Jesus. 
Doing for Jesus can keep really gifted people from really knowing Jesus because they mistake their gifting for a relationship. We think we're working for God, but ultimately we're doing it for ourselves. And Jesus says, ironically, serving evil purposes because Satan is the one who twists things for his own selfish purposes. So he's saying, you're being like Satan when you do that. I love the way that Pastor John Tyson uh, up in New York City says, impact without intimacy is evil. Impact without intimacy is evil. Man, how many times do we confuse a movement of the Holy Spirit, but in reality, it's just cover for a system of control using God for our own reputation, our own power, our own agendas. And Jesus says, at the end of the day, the problem with false teachers is yes, they have bad teaching. Yes, their life doesn't look like mine, but at the root of it, the real problem is they don't know me. They're disconnected from a life with me. And the fruit of that root of a life of disconnection with God is one that is not aligned with the kingdom of God, both in our life and our teaching. And it's not just that they're deceiving others. Just notice how shocked they are at the end. They're being deceived. They're deceiving themselves. They can't see it. They're shocked. What do you mean? We did all this supernatural wonders and miracles and all this charismatic stuff Jesus, we did all these things for you. And Jesus says, no, I didn't know you. And, and, and there's a contrast intended between this and then Matthew 25 when they're serving the poor and they're just doing normal, ordinary acts of the will of the Father. And they're surprised to know that when they did those acts, they were actually doing them for Jesus. And Jesus says, welcome to my kingdom. This is the contrast. We think we're doing powerful things in Jesus' name only to find out there's no intimacy with him. And we're sent away from his presence. So what's our imitation here as we go to communion? What is our imitation in this moment? How do we find the narrow path of life with Jesus and his kingdom and and stay on that path? I I think here there's an invitation not just to be discerning, right? Although we need to watch out, we need to be discerning about false prophets and we need to see these dangers. But I think if you go back up into this passage in verse 18, Jesus talks about good trees, And he goes on in the rest of Matthew to teach and to invite his disciples to become good trees, good trees who are rooted in the goodness of Jesus, bearing fruit of repentance and life, who then by the end of Matthew, when Jesus gives his spirit and pours it out, they go out to spread the good news of Jesus and become true prophets, to become what Henri Nouwen calls a contemplative critic a contemplative critic. I love that language, right? So it's a person who, yes, is discerning, but is not so obsessed with like starting a discernment ministry where they're just calling out the bad, right? Like in our moment, we're exquisitely attuned to calling out all that's wrong with the church, and that's necessary, but that's not the end. Now one says, it's easy to protest what you're against, but it's hard to live an alternative story. Amen. We need to hear that word, and we need to say less like, oh, let's just call out everything that's wrong in the church and the world, and more like, how do we live something different? Our critiques are so strong in this moment, but our lives often are so weak, and our relationship with Jesus is so weak. And so I think, first and foremost, a contemplative critic, a contemplative is one who is awake, who's prayerful, who's discerning God's will for their lives living with this constant sense of awareness of God, practicing the presence of God, so that when we critique, we critique from a place of encounter with God where we have a hopeful vision for the future. But listen to this. We start with ourselves. And that's what we do each week in communion. We start with ourselves. If you read the biblical prophets, we love being prophets when it comes to calling other people out, but nobody likes to live a prophet when they say, like in Isaiah 6, they meet God and his holiness. And what do they say? Not woe is you. What is it first? Woe is me. That's the the heart of a true prophet. We look inside and we say, could this be me? I mean, like all week, I've had some serious, serious, like looking in this passage and going, how am I doing that? Am I doing that? And and that's the place to start, like looking inside of ourselves and being self-critical first. Before we look out and say, woe is you, we start with woe is me. And then as we move out into the world and we do that work and God refines us and we repent and we experience renewal with him, then we move out into the world to be hopeful critics, right? A hopeful critic is one who has a vision of the future, a vision of the kingdom of God, a vision of God himself, 
and is not afraid to critique either side of the aisle, is not afraid to critique anyone in love, but it's done for a hopefulness, for a different kind of future that's not just against something, but for the kingdom of God. And I feel like that is the invitation for us as a community to become true prophets. We need luminaries. We need prophets, right? Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot bad going on in the church. But let's, let's ask a question. How, how are we going to be different in the future? We, we must all grow up and become true prophets for one another, speaking out of a deep relationship with God that transforms our life from the inside out and then begins to help us embody a wisdom, a beauty, a goodness, a tenderness, a kindness, a love that's unexplainable in our cultural moment that I believe will be a compelling invitation for this generation to come and to enter in the narrow gate through Jesus. And so let's just take a moment to put our stuff away as we come to communion. I know this is a heavy teaching. There's a lot in here. And so I don't know where the Spirit is speaking and moving, but we just want to create some space to say, come Holy Spirit, to ask Jesus to do this deep work in our own lives first, to, to become a contemplative, to become a person who's awake and who is alert and who's in relationship, prayerful relationship with God is something that only God can do in our lives. And so we just want to create space to, to just respond to whatever God's saying to us in this moment, to pursue the healing that we need to pursue, to ask those hard questions of ourselves, about our lives and about our choices when it comes to this narrow way, right? It's hard. It's difficult. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, right? I'm, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So come, just come to me, trust me, love me, surrender yourself to me. And so that's what we're gonna pray that God does. So I'm gonna pray over us as we come to communion and we do this work of confession and repentance and returning to Jesus. And then, um, and then I'll give some instructions and we'll lead on into communion in the rest of our service. We have another song to sing. Lord, would you come in this moment? Holy Spirit, would you pour out on us and allow us to experience deep, a deep wakefulness, to be on guard against the ways that we are striving in the wrong directions. We're pursuing the wrong paths and ways. We're pursuing self-righteousness over the righteousness that only you can give, and it's killing us. And so, God, would you help us to turn around, literally to repent, to turn and go the other way, to rethink everything that we think we know about life and to simply come to you, the most brilliant teacher to ever live, our Lord, our Savior, the one who embodies fullness of life in the kingdom. Would you help us to come to you and trust you and surrender ourselves to you and to cling to you as the only one who can solve the deepest longings of our heart? We pray this in your name. Amen.